You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.vin. Good morning. Morning, morning. Good morning. I'm so sorry to interrupt your conversations, he says slightly aggressively. Uh, It's fantastic to be here. My name's Chuck. I'm one of the leaders here. A massive hello to uh, a bunch of our other sites who are joining us this morning. So I believe uh, Live and North and Inverurie and Merns are joining us by the wonders of technology. And so we're going to give them a cheer. Yeah. Um, And uh, for those of you who are um, joining us by technology, just to let you know, you're joining us on a very emotional morning because my son is being baptised this morning. So, So, you know, if I could just about hold it together, then that would be good. If I make any sense at all, then that would be a blessing to us all. Uh, But it is really, really a good day to to be the pastor of this church, I'll tell you that. And so, yeah. Anyway, let's pray and then we're going to open up God's word together. And Jesus, we're celebrating this morning because you're not in a tomb. You're alive and you're at work and you're changing lives. And we... We're so grateful that you're involved in our lives. You're not at a distance. You're interested in who we are and how we live and and, uh, what makes us tick. You're you're so deeply interested in all of those things. And so we pray that by your word and by your spirit, you would be just speaking to each one of us, whether they're in this room or in one of the other rooms this morning. Come and meet with us. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. 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 I wonder whether you know what the most popular children's toy of all time is. Uh, You might be tempted to think it's Barbie. It isn't. Or Lego. It isn't. Uh, Or Meccano. Or um, uh, Cabbage Patch Kids. It's not. It is, in fact, the Rubik's Cube. Apparently, according to the list that I read, don't hold me to that, it may not be true, uh, but that's what I've heard. And, and when I was a kid, for Christmas one year, my parents gave me a Rubik's Cube, and I was like, oh, thank you so much, you shouldn't have. And, and I realised during the course of the Christmas holidays that I was completely useless at it. You know, I tried so many times, but I just couldn't even get a couple of the squares next to each other to have the same colour, and it was just terrible. And so, uh, school starts again in January, I arrive at school, I bring my present with me, and and I'm like, yeah, I just can't get this thing to work. And my mate says to me, oh, I can do those. And I was like, wow, that's amazing, show me. He said, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll take it home tonight, I'll bring it back tomorrow. I was like, okay, that's cool. So he brings it back the next day, it's completely done. I was like, how did you do that? And I said, I bet you can't do it again. And I mucked it up again, I gave it to him, he comes back the next day, it's completely done. I said, you're going to have to show me now how to do it. He said, oh no, I, I, it doesn't work here. 
I was like, I don't understand what you mean. He said, yeah, I, I have to take it to this special place, and then I have to do it, and it only really works in my special place. I'm thinking, there's something really suspect about this. And so I uh, did what you did in primary school, which is like the equivalent of waterboarding for primary school kids. You know, when you twist someone's wrist and until it hurts. And so I twisted his wrist until it hurt. I'm sorry, mate. And, and um, uh, he said, okay, I admit what I did. And what he'd done was he'd taken a craft knife, he'd removed all of the stickers from the Rubik's Cube, and then he just stuck them exactly back into the right place. And at the time, I don't know how you would respond to that, at the time, I was so deeply shocked. I just couldn't believe that anyone in the world, least of all my friend, could be that deceptive. You know, it's like, I can't believe that you've done that. And I was just thinking about that recently and thinking about my response to what happened. And I was thinking, do you know what? I don't think I would be the same now. And it's not just because I'm older. It's because we're kind of living in a different world. You know, even our kids know that that email that pretends to come from an African prince that says, if you just, you know, happen to send me an email, then I'm going to transfer a million dollars into your bank account. Even our kids know that that's not real. In fact, especially our kids know that that's not real. Or the, the TripAdvisor reviews or, or uh, the text message that pretends it comes from your bank. Our kids especially know that that's not real because we're living in a cynical world where we're all being trained to be skeptical. And we are living in a world that is largely devoid of authenticity and integrity. And yet the human heart is a heart that longs for truth. We actually long for truth. We long to be able to pin our lives on things that are absolutely rock-solid true. And we're in a, a series at the moment, working our way through the book of James. So if you, let me just stop for a moment, because I may have already said something that some people in the room or in one of the other rooms don't understand. So the Bible seems to be one book, but it's actually more like an anthology of different books. There are 66 books within the Bible. Uh, starts in the book of Genesis, ends in the book of Revelation. You've got the Gospels in the middle somewhere. And after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are a whole bunch of letters. And one of the letters is called uh, James. And uh, James probably is written, well, it's written by someone called James. That's why it's called James. Uh, but, but James may well have been Jesus's brother. So, so we know that Jesus had a bunch of brothers. We know that one of Jesus's brothers was called James. And that, that uh, James is like this really influential leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And so there's, you know, there are all kinds of different theories, but, but there's no like really strong reason to believe that this isn't Jesus's brother, James, who wrote this book. We've been working our way through it. And James's driving passion is that we would be people who live out our faith with integrity, with authenticity, that, that we wouldn't be pretenders, that we wouldn't be the kind of people who present as being Christians, but actually we're not really. He's like, you've got to be the real deal. That's his driving passion. And we will have seen that already for several weeks. And we're going to see that for some more weeks to come. That's why we're calling this series Authentic Faith. Because that's really his driving passion. Today we're in chapter 2. And this is like the beating heart of his, his letter. So chapter 2 verse 14. He says that it's going to come up on the screen as well. There you go. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. And that's where we're going to finish today. I'm just going to turn up the brightness on my screen. There you go. I was reading a couple of weeks ago uh, a, a kind of a short biography of a guy, a guy called George Muller. I don't know whether that name is familiar to you. He was a kind of German pastor, missionary, comes over from Germany in 1832, lands in Bristol. And he's, he's not actually really too sure what he's supposed to do when he gets to Bristol. And so he starts to walk the streets of Bristol, just praying, Lord, just show me what to do. And he comes across loads and loads of kids who are living on the streets. They're homeless. They, their parents seem to be nowhere and, and he's really worried about them. And so he just thinks, well, I could do something about that. And he opens up his home and he invites 30 young girls to come and live in his house. And, but he thinks, oh, I've got to do something with the boys as well. And, and so he rents another house and then the boys go and live in that house. And before long, he's rent, rented three or four houses and he's got loads and loads of kids. But the neighbours absolutely hate it. He's like, well, what am I going to do now? So then he builds a purpose-built orphanage and 300 kids come and live in that home and before long he's got like five different homes scattered around Bristol with more than 2,000 kids living in these in these homes it's just an amazing story but what's even more amazing is that the government didn't pay for it and, and, and he didn't actually ask anyone really ever for, for money he just prayed and he had faith that God was going to provide everything that he needed it's just an amazing story and so over the course of time every gift that comes in he writes it in his book and he keeps a record all throughout his life and ministry of all of these different gifts that came in and when they were added up at the end of his life they amounted to 1.4 million pounds which in the 19th century is like a huge amount of money and in fact in today's money it'd be worth more than 100 million pounds there were moments where like he'd have 300 kids sat there ready for breakfast they're all in their school uniform or whatever and and uh, he's like i've just got nothing to feed these kids and so he said right kids we're going to pray and we're going to see what god does and then suddenly uh, it was recorded in this biography there was a knock on the door and it was the milkman and the milkman says oh you wouldn't believe it but just as i was passing your door the the wheel fell off the cart and so we've got to remove all of this milk before we can fix the cart could you just use all of this milk for us? And they're like, yes, we could use all of this milk. And then, the, uh, then there's another knock on the door and it's the baker. And he's like, I just couldn't sleep last night for some reason. And so I ended up baking extra bread this morning. Could you just use all of this bread? And they're like, yes, we could use this bread. And those are the kind of things that happen all the time. And when I was reading this story, what I was thinking was, that was just one man full of faith. And then I was thinking about us being gathered here this morning and I was thinking, what would it look like for each one of us to live with that amount of faith? I don't know whether you could just imagine what you're going to be doing tomorrow and this week and just think about what, it, what would it look like for George Muller to live your life and to be a person of prayer and a person of faith, trusting God that he would provide everything that you needed as you followed God's call 
on your life. And so that's really what this whole book that we're journeying through, the driving passion of James's life is people who live by faith, but it's the real deal. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The real deal, not, or, not kind of inauthentic or superficial faith, but real faith. And he's going to teach us about what is real faith. The first thing he's going to say is this. Real faith is faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. In the English language, we use words to mean lots of different things. And, and often, if I use a word, it's definitely not the same as the way my kids use the same words, you know. And he just refer you to words like sick. Uh, in my, you know, when I use the word sick, it means something very different from when my kids use the word sick. And... In fact, they've probably moved on from that word now. They're using something else. I'm so sorry, kids. I've embarrassed you. But anyway, uh, when we use the word faith, we don't all mean the same thing. You know, for some people, when they're talking about faith, they kind of mean like, oh, I've got faith. They just mean I'm backing myself. You know, I've got faith in myself. Um, my wife, Taryn, the other week, she referenced a, an interview that we came across with the punk icon, Debbie Harry, who said this, I think it's important to have faith. But the most important thing is to have a deep faith in yourself. Some people use the word faith like that. It's like, I believe in myself. I'm trusting myself. And the problem with that is, is as the late Charles Stanley said, he said this, if you put your faith in yourself and your abilities, intellect and dreams, then the foundation of your life is only as strong as you are. Which is true, isn't it? Other people use the word faith in a more spiritual sense, but it's a kind of generic, non-specific faith. I um, used to work in London. I used to commute backwards and forwards on the train. And, and the, the unwritten rule in London on the train is you don't make eye contact with anyone and you don't make conversation with anyone. That's the deal. It's like just an unwritten rule. And I was sat opposite this guy one day and he was visibly distressed. And so I was like all confused about what to do but eventually I said to him mate what's what's going on for you and he said oh, I just heard that my uncle's died and I'm just really gutted about it and so we were speaking about that and he said oh but don't worry I've got faith that I'll see my uncle again and I was like wow that's cool yeah but then when we talked spoke a bit more about it, it it was like he didn't believe in God he didn't believe in heaven he didn't believe in any kind of resurrection but he still believed that he would see his uncle again. And I was just really confused about that. I was like, well, so what, just help me to understand, what is your belief that you'll see your uncle again based on? And he was like, well, it's just based on my faith. I just have a faith that I'll see my uncle again. It's like this circular argument. And, and I was thinking, wow, like, you'd really want to have a faith that's rooted in something or has some kind of foundation to it. Otherwise, it'd be a bit like if you were um, a stuntman. And you were like, I'm going to jump off this building and I'm going to have faith that there's one of those like inflatable, I don't know what you call it, like pillow things at the bottom so that you jump off the building and land on the inflatable thing. You'd want to have it actually checked, wouldn't you? Like there is actually one. No, no, no. I'm just going to jump off and just hope that I'm just going to believe that there's an inflatable pillow thing at the bottom. Like, that's a dangerous thing. Well, James doesn't use the word, he uses the word faith all the way through his letter. He never uses the word faith like that. Not in some mystical sense, not in some kind of I'm backing myself kind of a way. He's always talking about faith in Jesus. And 
Uh, it's not in our particular passage, but if you go a few verses earlier to chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is faith that is rooted in a person. He's like, I, I, you know, actually our faith is a personal faith. It's, it's rooted, it's focused on a person. And it, the, the really great news is that that person, Jesus, is really, really kind and really, really powerful. And so if we're going to make a choice about who to have our faith in, then Jesus is a really, really great choice. Real faith is in Jesus. Secondly, real faith is rooted in compassion. And, and we, we'll, we have come across this already and we'll come across it again, this idea that the kind of faith that James is talking about is a faith that is displayed to the world in the way that we um, treat people who don't have anything, the poor, the broken, the marginalized, people who are pushed to the edge of society. He's like, if you have a real faith in Jesus, that's going to find its way out. It's going to leak its way out in the way that you love other people. You'll see that in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but doesn't do anything, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I was like, wow, Jesus is, James is really going in hard for, for that. You know, he doesn't say faith without actions is suboptimal or faith without action is like not quite the real you know the finished article he says faith without action is dead why is he so hard on that well actually it seems like what he's doing is he's very worried about the future of the church he's worried that the the disciples of Jesus have, have kind of been scattered out into the world and instead of them going into the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus the world is kind of seeping into them and actually, we should be worried about that too, that the way that we live our lives is, you know, that our own thinking is being infected by the world around us. That's what he's concerned about. In particular, it seems like he's concerned that a particular kind of Greek philosophy is seeping into the church. And the Greek philosophy is called Stoicism. Let me just check. Is there anyone in the room who is an expert in Greek philosophy? Uh, Colin is. Okay, well, I'm going to check this with Colin later, and Colin is going to make sure that I'm on the right lines. But I've read one book, so I can speak with some authority on the subject. Uh, so st Stoicism, the, the goal of the Stoic is, is that they would reach a, a phase that they called apatheia. And apatheia is like total serenity. It's like, I, I, I just want to reach a place where I'm completely serene at all times. That's the goal of Greek stoic philosophy and the problem is that things like emotions get in the way of that right you don't want to be feeling too emotional because that's going to mess with your mojo and so you just want to make sure that you avoid emotion at all costs and the problem with trying to avoid emotion at all costs is that there are particular things that come come up in life or people you come across that kind of tug on the heartstrings and, and, you know, make you feel emotional. And you want to avoid that because you're aiming for absolute serenity. And so you definitely want to avoid anyone who's like struggling in life because you might feel pity towards them. And you, you definitely don't want to walk down Union Street and, and come across people who are like sleeping in doorways and stuff like that because that's going to be emotional for you and you're aiming for apatheia. 
And so, for example, uh, Epictetus, who is one of these philosophers, he says, only he who disobeys the divine command will ever feel grief or pity. Or uh, Virgil, he, he draws this kind of word picture. He's like painting a picture of what a, someone who's really happy is like. And he says this, um, uh, he has no pity for the poor and no grief for the sorrowing, for such emotions would only upset his own serenity. And so James is really worried. He's like, if, if people get on board with this idea, then, then the church is going to stop serving the world and it's going to stop loving the poor. And that would be a terrible thing. And obviously James, most likely Jesus' brother, he, he's known Jesus. And he's seen that Jesus has, the, has lived the very opposite kind of life. Wherever Jesus goes, he's moved with compassion. He's like just absolutely gutted by people who are like on the edges of society because they're sick with leprosy or with some other kind of disease. He's devastated by the poverty that he sees. He's so upset with the spiritual poverty in Jerusalem that he's weeping. He's weeping at uh, Lazarus's tomb. Like he's the kind of person who's deeply moved all the time. He can't go anywhere with, with Jesus without him just being just so sad about the things that he comes across. And so James is like, real faith is like the opposite of stoic faith. In fact, there's no such thing as stoic faith. That's why he's saying faith without action is dead. About 20 years ago, I was uh, uh, with a group of young people and we went to South Africa. And the particular place we went to in South Africa, uh, we were working with some projects that were uh, working with kids who'd been orphaned by HIV AIDS. And, and so, you know, you meet any single one of these kids and their story would just break your heart. But to, to see loads and loads of these kids, it was like just almost traumatizing to, to hear their stories. And, and so we, I mean, I don't imagine we were especially useful, you know, like we were trying to be useful, just building stuff and, and helping out where we could. But it, it, was, it was a powerful time. And, and also, where, wherever you drive around in the city, you, you, wherever you stopped at a traffic light, there'd be kids like, as young as two or three just knocking on your window and just begging for food. It was just like none of us who were on that trip will, will ever be the same again. It's like the kind of experience that will just, in, in the best sense, damage you. And then we got on the plane, and, and, and I just happened to be sat next to this lady, and I was speaking to her, and she was saying that she commuted between South Africa and the UK, depending on the weather. So, you know, during the winter here, she would be in South Africa enjoying the sunshine, and then she'd come back the other way, and she was, like, living her best life, and live, staying in only the finest hotels, and eating the finest food, and, and, like, I was, you know, trying to wrap my head around, you're having a holiday in a place where there are kids knocking on the, you know, it's just, like, too much for me to bear, and, but, so I was like, just help me to understand how this works for you, and she was like, oh, well, what you need to understand is, those kids have got homes, they're, they're just, they found a way to earn money. And what you need to understand is that those people who look like they're living in cardboard boxes, you know, in car parks and stuff like that, they've actually got other really nice homes in the countryside. They just come here during the week and they go back at weekends. And I was like, I was thinking, you're seeing everything that I'm seeing, but you're not seeing what I'm seeing. And I was, you know, like people who know me well know that I, you know, my general temperament is pretty even and I really get like strongly angry or anything like that. But I was like pacing up and down the aisle of the, um, 
plane just wanting to punch someone. I was just so cross. I was like, this is like... And, and like 20 years on, I, I think where I am now is I'm way less judgmental towards that lady and more concerned that I've become her. That somehow it seems more possible to walk past people and not see what other people see. Real faith is displayed. We should expect it to be displayed in the way that we serve people who other people don't see. Thirdly, real faith is thought through. It's thought through. Um, This is maybe just something to notice in passing, but I do think it's important. Lots of people think that you can either be a rational and reasonable person, or you can be an emotional and feelings kind of a person, but you can't be both. You know, and, and having just talked about how we should be the kind of people who feel stuff, um, uh, you might be expecting me to therefore say, so therefore you can just kind of uncheck your brain. You won't be needing your brain as a Christian. And, and I would just want to say that actually the very opposite of that is true. What I've noticed as I've been studying the letter, you know, this book of James, is that James is the kind of person who is full of compassion, but also is a deeply thinking person. And in fact, what you see in this passage is that, you know, he's like talking about faith and he's talking about faith without deeds is dead. And then he says, oh, you might want to say, and then he goes, you know, here's some of the objections you might have to what I'm saying. And then he says, and I say back to you. So this is someone who's really thought through the whole thing about how faith works. And he's thought about what people might say and he's got responses to all of it. So this is a thinking faith. You know, um, uh, if you're not a Christian here today, you, you've maybe believed that, that there's no such thing as a thinking Christian. And I would just want to say to you that that's absolutely not true. You know, in fact, we, um, uh, we just had the launch of the Alpha Course here the other night. The Alpha Course has been done by 28 million people around the world. Why has it been done by 28 million people around the world? Because it provides an opportunity for people to think through what they believe. And so if you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you are or you you just want to have an opportunity to think through your faith, it's not too late to start the Alpha course. I think they've just had the first week and so you can definitely still join and encourage you to do that. But if you are a Christian here today, either in this room or one of the other rooms, um, I just want to, I think this, this would challenge all of us to be thinking Christians. Like when was the last time you stopped to really think through why you believe what you believe about all kinds of things? My, uh, well, let me say, loads of young people in this church at the moment are on fire for Jesus. And, and it's really, really amazing. Uh, I, think, I actually think it's like a little move of God. I think it's, it's God is doing something really amazing amongst our young people. And uh, like our family has been kind of swept up into that. And, and uh, there was a Friday night a few months ago. It was quarter to 12, uh, quarter to midnight on a Friday night. Me and Taryn are on the sofa only because we haven't got the energy to go to bed. And that doesn't happen to anyone else, I'm sure. But we were just like... Oh, we're so tired. We should go to bed. You know, we've been, we've been intending to go to bed for some time. And then um, my daughter comes down the stairs and she's on a, a, a FaceTime call with one of her friends. 
And they've been, what have they been doing on Friday night? They've been studying the Bible. Of course they have. And so there they are, they're studying the Bible, and she comes downstairs, she says, Dad, uh, me, me and my friend, we've been studying in Revelation, and we're just a bit confused. Could you just explain who the Antichrist is to us, please? It's quarter to midnight on a Friday night. I have no idea whether what I said was, was coherent or even true. It's quarter to midnight, but my daughter and her friends are just on a mission to learn and to grow. And they're setting an example for us. And so I think, you know, there's a challenge for all of us. It's like, am I thinking through? Am I learning? Am I growing? And am I going deeper in my faith? Deeply challenged. She's 15 years old. Real faith is thought through. And finally, real faith expresses itself in action. Real faith expresses itself in action. Um, I must admit, and, and th this will mean that what I'm about to say, this confession will, will mean that some of you think slightly less of me, but I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I really love those kind of personality tests that you can do online. You know, when you just find out a bit more about yourself, you have to be a bit careful because some of them you fill in, that just ends up you, you being hacked, and, and so you mustn't do those ones. But uh, I, I just love, I love the insight that some people think so differently from other people, you know, and, and a number of years ago we had this guy come into our church staff team and took us through the Myers-Briggs personality test. Has anyone done those things? Okay, quite a lot of us. They're quite fun and, and one of the things that you discover is that some people really love to just get things done right now. You know, and other people, they like to just put things off for some other point. And, and as part of trying to demonstrate that, this particular guy had come into our staff team. He got us to line up in a line and he said, if you have to get everything done right now so that you can relax, you stand here. And if you can put off everything that you do and then just do it at some other point and relax right now, then you stand over here. And so we lined up and my wife Taryn was all the way over here and I was all the way over there. We were the extreme opposite ends. And so for Taryn, like she's the kind of person, every night she gets her notebook out, she writes a list of all the things she's going to accomplish the next day, and then during the day she ticks them off one by one, and she can't sit down and relax until every single thing is ticked off in a notebook. Is there anyone here who is, uh, is like that? Okay, quite a few of you. Okay, and, and then there are people like me, who like, I, can, I don't have to wait till I've done all my jobs before I can relax, I can relax anytime I like. And I can just put off to some other unspecified moment in time all the things that are really, really urgent. Do we have an amen for some of those people? Yeah, come on. And so we, you know, like, we live with different preferences about how things happen. And, and some of those preferences are like, they're not just like, oh, I, 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 I kind of prefer this. They're like deeply held convictions and it's just like a sense of identity it's almost to the point where it's like this is morally right you know I, and, and then you know and, and that could be about anything I might have a preference to not eat meat or or, or to not eat vegetables or, or um, you know whatever it is we have all kinds of preferences but James wants to tell us we don't get to choose between being a person of faith or being a person of action that's not a preference we get to, to um, uh, to name, to identify. Because he says in verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. And he goes on to say, it's a far better way to, to have faith 
expressing itself in deeds. As my wife often, this is maybe an easy way to understand it, my wife often says, you don't get to just tell me you love me, you also have to put the bins out. Right? That's, you know, it's like faith, it's like, you know, uh, you're someone who loves Jesus uh, and also you're someone who does the things that Jesus is asking you to do. And so that should maybe come as a challenge to all of us. So for some of us, the invitation of today's passage is to not only be a person of prayer and a person of uh, scripture and a person with a really deep knowledge and intimate uh, relationship with Jesus, you also need to roll up your sleeves and serve some people. And for other people, you're like, no, 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 I'm like, I love like serving people. That's where I get my kicks. Like I feel alive. I feel like I connect with Jesus when I'm serving the last, the least and the lost. It's like, yeah, but also you also have to pray and go deeper in your faith. And so for some of us, it's like I, I, I need to, to look more at um, the work of the Lord and other people, you have to investigate more the Lord of the work, but together we can all grow. And so why don't we stand?